Hey gang, welcome to episode 13 of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. Today's episode is all about building tone, building a good guitar tone and a good bass tone. Building a good tone is the first part in getting a good recording. You got to have a tone that you like. Ben and I talk about specific strategies for fine-tuning your tone with the gear you have. We also talk about tips and tricks for picking new gear if you're on the market to upgrade or change your tone. Enjoy. You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Welcome once again to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. As always, I'm your host, Benjamin Hall from DreamLot Studio. Along here with my co-host, Vadim Karaz from Comfrog Recording. That was wonderful, Ben. You did a really nice job. Well, thank you. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing really good, man. I mean, I'm trying to get used to uh, this new quarantined world we're living in. I know. It's a little bizarre. It's wild. What's your strategies for staying sane? Well... <laughs> For me, I'm an introvert, so I'm just loving it. But um, so I might not be the best person to ask about this. Uh, but I don't know. In, in general, I think that you can, when you're alone so much, you can kind of let your thoughts get away from you. Just in general, regardless of whether or not we're dealing with a pandemic out there. Um, so I just try to stay busy. You know, talk to friends and family, and just keep myself busy doing work, you know, writing new songs. I feel like anytime that anytime that I'm bored or feel like I don't have anything to do, I think about I try to think about all the things that I can do to be productive. So that's my that's my quick strategy to figuring to figuring out how to stay sane. <laughs> how about you? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I'm secretly also kind of loving it. I mean, I I work mostly from home anyway. So Yeah. It's not that the only difference for me is now when I wake up on Monday, I don't have to feel guilty that I'm the only one who's staying home. Like everybody's staying home. That's true. So yeah. As long as everyone, you know, stays healthy, which um, so far my family is, is thankfully doing okay, we'll be all right. One thing we did was um, we set up like a, we have like a family Slack channel with like my wife's family and. Oh, do you? Yeah. And so we set up. Um, like we do like daily exercises, it just sounds weird. But what I do is like every morning I'll film a little video of like the day's exercises and everybody has to try to get like a couple of sets in that day. So we've been, uh, we've been doing that and that's been fun. That's a great idea. I love that. I will have to do something similar. So what are we talking about today? I'm just kidding. I already today, know, but I want I want to hear it from you. <laughs> today we are going to talk all about guitar tone, the elusive golden calf that is guitar tone. Yeah, I'm so glad you introduced it that way because I definitely <laughs> feel like guitar tone is my white whale. It's my it's my lifelong quest. And really, since we started this podcast, I've been excited to do this episode. Actually, we're going to do a batch of episodes. So on specifically on recording guitars and bass, this is kind of the first one where we're going to dive into the basics of building tones. And then we're going to do episodes on actually, okay, how do you get those tones that you've built into your computer? Talk about mic techniques and so on. 
So for me, I mean, the, the tone journey started, I got an electric guitar, I think when I was probably 13 years old and I got an amp shortly after that. And the, I was right away, I was like, I want to figure out how to play Bulls on Parade by Rage Against the Machine, right? That was like, Oh, really? And just and just figuring out like I had the guitar tab printed out on my on my print. I can't remember if printer still had like the spool, the side spools back then. I'm not that old, I don't think. But <laughs> anyway, I had my guitar tab <laughs> and I was like trying to figure out how to get a distortion tone. And it was confusing. The little practice amp I had, it had two gain knobs and it had a whole EQ section and reverb and all this stuff. And pretty quickly I realized like there's a lot to this. And, and um, mm-hmm. one of the things we're going to talk about is why a guitar tone is so, is so elusive. Why is it so hard? Maybe, maybe this is just for me. I want to know what you think. But why is it so hard to dial in a guitar tone? Before we do that, I want to know about your early experiences, as a, not as a recording engineer, but just as a musician on chasing tones. You know, also out there, listeners, um, if you haven't joined our Facebook community yet, why don't you join? And that would be a great question for everybody to ask, because I, I just love reading and hearing how everybody got into playing and, and researching. Well, just in essence, um, there's so many genres and uh, different varieties of guitar tone out there, and it's interesting to see why people decide on the tones that they pick. So I, I would love to hear from anybody out there listening um, what inspired them to get into guitar and get into whatever guitar tone or whatever guitar rig that they have. So please answer Redeem's question along with me. <laughs> <laughs> yep, great plug. Great plug for the Facebook group. But I'm not going to let you off the hook. I still want to know. What's uh, your first knob twiddling experience? What was it like? Well, I think... <sighs> Knob twiddling experience. Um, I remember the first time I ever played bass, because I was a drummer originally, and I picked up bass, I guess I was a freshman in high school, so this is back in 2001, and if you remember what was big in 2000 or 2001 is the first Slipknot album came out, Mm. and it kind of took the world by storm, so I was trying to play a Slipknot song on bass, and I didn't even know how to play bass, (laughs) which was kind of a disaster. And I remember playing so much the one night with my fingers that I got a huge blister on my finger, and then I had to stop playing because I hurt too bad. So that was essentially essentially (laughs) my my first experience. But um, I remember thinking pretty... Realizing pretty quickly, because I was listening to a lot of hard rock and metal back then, that, okay, like I've got this first act of bass that I got from Walmart plugged into a very simple amplifier and why why does the sound of my bass sound so different than these records like what are they doing to get these tones on there why does it sound how come everything I'm listening to sounds so much meaner and nastier and awesome <laughs> than than my bass what's the uh uh What's the missing link? Right. And I think the first thing that I did was uh, I, the first pedal I ever messed with was I bought a Ibanez Fat Head, and this is Fat P H A T. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ibanez Fat Head Bass Distortion Pedal. And the main reason I bought it was because I saw it in Bass Player Magazine and Fieldy from Corn mm. was repping it as part of his bass rig. And I was like, I like corn. I like 
I don't really like his bass tone, but I like chord and I and I like heavy music. So why don't I buy that and see if it adds in like the missing thing that I think I've been, you know, that I've been chasing tone wise. And so I started fiddling around with those knobs and, and that's kind of where it all began. And I probably put uh, bass distortion on way too many songs from like Weezer to <laughs> to like anything else that I could throw that pedal onto and yeah I know it sounded terrible I was just learning but it was fun to mess with affecting the sound because uh, all I could ever do before was just have a clean a clean bass that sounded like a piano coming through an amp and now I had now I unlocked this I don't know this pleasant noise that you get from distortion yeah yeah it was funny because I remember when I was going through my quest my my dad who's not a musician but he has like a background in electronics he was telling me that he he's like it's crazy, you know, for everything else in the world we try to just minimize like noise and distortion, but for guitar you're we're like trying to maximize it, right? So so that's yeah. interesting. Um yeah, so so that's I think that's the experience a lot of people have and if you're listening to this episode, we're going to get into some very specific tricks on and tips on how to build up a tone because I know I I kind of had a similar experience where I eventually got into multi effects pedals which um, is a whole other discussion on whether you should use multi-effects pedals or not. But I used to I used to make my decisions on how many features per dollar do I get, which is a terrible way to make gear decisions. I call that the Swiss Army knife fallacy now because it's, it's a terrible idea. Ah. Well, that's probably a whole episode in and of itself. But anyway, so, you know, I used to, my strategy used to be like I'd be sitting in in, in class or something and I'd be like thinking in my head about, I'd come up with a chain, you know, I want to get a distortion pedal into a flanger pedal into this. And I would come home and I would plug it all in and I would just start twisting knobs randomly. And it was like really frustrating because like I'm kind of a meticulous person and I want to get the best possible sound I can get. And I was basically just randomly trying things and it's it's a terrible way to build up a tone. So I want yeah. to start this episode by talking about start we're like 10 minutes in already but start uh mentioning why guitar tends to be so difficult and we kind of already touched on the reason here is something it's just every time you you reach something in your chain where you can make an adjustment or a tweak we can call that like a degree of freedom right it's a variable and we have a lot of variables when we're talking about guitar tone I mean, if you think about like contrast that with a vocal chain where you have a vocalist singing into a microphone. And as we mentioned, in our recording vocals episode, that voice goes through the room. So you have a couple of things that are affecting your tone, but that's pretty much it. You have your, your vocalist and your room and your microphone for a guitar. Before you even have left the guitar, you have tone knobs, volume knobs, different pickups, pickup selector switches. You can control what kind of pick you're using. So we're going to go through some of these things. Yeah. And talk about those degrees of freedom and how to think about them. The second reason I think it's so tough is because of like the range of function of a guitar. Where if you think about how many different guitar tones there are. I mean, I just wrote down a couple of artists here. Like you think about like a Jack Johnson guitar tone versus a Stevie Ray Vaughan guitar tone versus Jack White versus Metallica versus Periphery. Those are all guitars. They sound extremely different. Mm -hmm. So the guitar can do a lot of different things depending on the genre. And so there's a lot of different kind of tone shaping options. And the final thing is just how highly affected it is. Like I can't think of really another instrument where you would have 
I mean, if you look at like a guitar board, like a pedal board, right? There can be like 10, 15 pedals on there sometimes. I can't think of another instrument where that's the case. Yeah, I can't either. I When you were just talking about that, I remember um, looking at a live pedal rig from John Frusciante for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he had three massive pedal boards. And the first two <laughs> were all just Moog synthesizers. Oh, my God. And it just like... Like, I'm sure he used every single one for a specific purpose, but like, it just goes back to your point of, you know, guitarists are always looking for more ways to affect their signal. It's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's fun. You know, I think one thing to realize as we go through this episode is that you got to, it's like, it's like life in general. There's no destination. You just have to enjoy the journey, right? Yep. We got to put, put some uh, Buddhist back background music into that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's get started. So I want to start with kind of the chain and go back and forth a little bit on some of these things and how they affect your sound. So we'll start like we always do. We always build things up from the ground with our pyramid, right? So we'll start yeah. at the fingertips. Obviously, a guitar, you know, you always hear this kind of platitude of like tone is in the fingers, which is true. But you're the player, you know, you're the player you are, and certainly you should practice and try to get better. But we're going to start at the guitar pick. So let's talk a little bit about how guitar pick affects your tone. We'll start with just two designations of picks. One, if you're using a heavy pick, like a really thick guitar pick, versus a light pick versus finger style, right? And one thing to think about is if you're using a heavy pick, that means the pick is not going to be as flexible. It's not going to bend as much. And it's going to mean that the guitar is a lot more responsive to your pick attack. So if you have an inconsistent pick attack, that's going to show up in your tone, right? Because the pick is kind of, it's not yielding. And then the um, the attack of your sound it really is coming from your hands. Whereas with a light pick, you get almost like, I actually heard Nolly talk about this from Periphery, um, talks about recording bass with a really light pick. And one of the things he, one of the reasons he said he does that is because the pick is so flexible, that flexibility provides almost like a natural compression where he strums really hard, and because the pick is bending, he gets almost like a natural di- evening of the dynamics. I, I like that concept. Now, whenever he says really light pick, I, th- I still think he's using a 0.7 millimeter. So it's like medium heavy. <laughs> yeah, maybe just for bass. For, uh, by bass yeah, standards, maybe for yeah. bass. I like that idea for... Um, yeah, it's a... <laughs> Really, it depends on the style because I use everything, depending on what I'm playing, I use everything from very heavy to super light. Like when I'm tracking or playing acoustic guitar, I like to use the lightest pick possible Mm -hmm. because, uh, and the reason is, is because I'm taking big swooping strokes and I want, uh, I don't want any specific note that I hit to stand out more than the others, especially when I'm playing big chords. And two, I noticed when I was recording that the heavier the pick on an acoustic instrument, the more that pick sound gets picked up by the microphones. So I want the pick attack to be as transparent as possible and just to grab the tone from the strings vibrating on the guitar. Mm. So for acoustic guitar, I use a really light pick. Um, On bass, I tend to use medium to heavy, depending on the song or the genre. and uh, for guitar, I like to use medium picks for rhythms. And then for leads, I like to use a really heavy pick so I can really dig in and uh, 
get those punchy pick attacks for lead parts and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I I do. I mean, a part of it is also, can you play the part with the pick you have? And I found with, if a pick is too light for an electric guitar, it becomes harder to play some rhythmically tight things. I feel like I want Mm -hmm. that pick to be stiffer and and I can have a more predictable response. So yeah, the, the nice thing about this is that it's a cheap and quick thing to test, right? You can just buy an assorted pack of picks and try them. Try all of them out, record, and see what they sound like. It's a pretty, uh, or you know, which for just even for picking your tone, just see what you think of each of each pick's response. So that's uh, it's a really easy degree of freedom to to adjust. And I even like to do this with the guitar not plugged in. I'll just just play it and see what what it sounds like coming directly, you know, acoustically off of the electric guitar. So moving on to the guitar itself, there's a couple of major factors, and you might. You know, if you've if you've spent any time researching guitars, there's a million different types of guitars out there and a million options to choose from. The big thing is obviously the guitar construction and design, uh, the scale length and the body and neck materials. Those are kind of the biggest, I think, factors for uh, before we get into pickups, obviously. But those are the biggest factors. And we could break these down into categories of guitars that you've all seen and heard of. Like you know, Fender Stratocaster, Fender Telecaster, Gibson Les Paul, and maybe like PRS, right? So different scale lengths on those guitars, and you um, have different wood types and and things that do affect the tone a little bit. Um, again, for the wood type, really, it's the body and the neck that make the biggest difference. Things like fingerboard and like the top of the guitar really mostly cosmetic and and for looks and don't get me wrong looks are super important for electric guitars oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but an interesting one here is scale length this is something you may not have thought a lot about the scale length on the guitar is the distance the string length from the nut from where the string touches the nut uh, to where the string touches the bridge and there's kind of three main ones here gibson tends to have like a 24 and a half inch scale length where Fender has 25 and a half, so a little bit longer. And that's actually a big part of why Fender guitars sound different than Gibson guitars. If you think about this, for like, let's say you have a certain um, gauge of a string, with that longer scale length, you're gonna have to tune, you're gonna have to have more tension on the string to get the same note you would on a shorter scale length. What that means is your string is tighter and you're gonna have kind of a brighter sound. And, you know, it sounds like not a lot. It sounds like it's only an inch. How much difference can it make? But it actually does make a big difference. One interesting thing that I've seen, it's super popular in the instrumental prog scene right now, but uh, my bandmates in the fell, they all play fan fret guitars. So the bottom, when I say bottom string, the lowest note, it has a longer length than the highest tuned notes on the mm. guitar so you have this uh you have this fan scale length and basically every show that i've played with these guys uh, all the other instrumental prog rock bands they're all playing fan fret guitars and they all swear by them is that is that because of tone or intonation i think it's a little bit of it's a little bit of both okay it's ease of playing it's uh you get to it's easier to have you can tune lower with thinner gauge strings, essentially. Ah, okay. And if you're playing really fast stuff, or let's say you put a lot of bends and a lot of 
articulation into your your leads, it's going to be easier to play on thinner gauge strings versus thicker gauge. Right, right. And that's, um, you know, for years I was using really light strings for, for exactly that reason. Um, and I didn't realize how much string gauge actually affects tone. And it's quite a bit. And I've recently started to seriously heavily prefer heavy gauge strings for tone. Um, but yeah, I thought, so when we say intonation, we mean how well the, how in tune the guitar is up and down the neck. So if your guitar is perfectly in tune on the open strings, and then you may play an octave up, you know, 12th fret or so, and you find you're not in tune, that's kind of the intonation. And even if your guitar is set up properly, it's never going to be quite perfect. And I thought one of the things about those fan fret guitars was that you get better intonation but maybe that's maybe i'm thinking of something else there's another type of weird have you ever seen those guitars with like the frets are not quite straight yeah i've seen that it's bizarre it's so bizarre yeah i've never uh never tried to play one of those um yeah so obviously there's there's also hollow body electric guitars which are commonly used in jazz and that's almost like designed to almost almost the construction is similar to like an acoustic guitar and then most electric guitars in rock music are solid body, which means they're made out of usually a couple of two or three hunks of wood that are either glued together or bolted together, but you don't have to worry as much about that type of stuff. We're going to talk about a little bit, if you're, if you're in the market for a new guitar, talk about some things you can look at. Um, but we were talking, we started talking about strings. Let's talk about strings a little bit. Um, so yeah, my experience with that light string issue was actually on a seven string guitar where I found I was, I tuned it down a whole step or something like that. And I found this weird thing where on the lowest string, when I would, when I would play it, the note would walk around, the open string would kind of, the tuning would walk around a little bit. And it was like really weird and I didn't like it. And I think the reason, one of the reasons was my string gauge was just too light. I didn't have enough string tension for the tuning I wanted. Yeah, And so going with a heavier string there would have allowed the string to have more tension and better stability. That's definitely true. I, For me, I find it as a, there's a happy medium. You have optimal tone and also optimal tension. And mm. I found this a lot on bass because I was playing in a couple bands where we, tr- we tuned down to drop C on four string, well, on a four string bass mm-hmm. and six string guitars. And for that reason, typical bass, uh, typical bass string gauges go from 0.1, I guess that would, is that inches or millimeters? How do they talk about, or how do they list um, the gauge? string gauge sizes? Yeah, is that millimeter? It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, thousandths of an inch. Okay, thousandths of an inch. So typical bass strings for four string bass, they come in... 0.1 thousand or I guess 0.1 inch thickness yep. to 0.055. Okay. And what I would wind up doing is buying custom string gauges uh, where my E string that now was a C, which is two whole steps down, I like that to be 125. Mm. And then my lightest string would be a 75 which is typically what the d string would be tuned to and you had a you had a fifth interval on between the the lowest string and the i guess the yeah. fourth string and the third yeah okay so you have to go even yeah. heavier to get that extra extra whole step 
Exactly. And I didn't particularly like playing on a thicker gauge string because I I felt like on bass and I'm not as convinced the same is true on guitar, but on bass I felt like the thicker the string gets, the more you kind of lose out on the nice high-end tone. It kind of becomes more rounded hmm. of a tone. So the, the, the thicker the string is, I feel like the less tone you can get out of it, or it's harder to get good tone out of it. Um, but I needed it to be thick enough to have good tension because I play so hard live in particular. And otherwise, I would run into that issue that you were having on your seven-string guitar where you hit it and maybe you're holding down so you're holding down so hard when you're playing that you bend it a whole half step out of tune. Oh, I see. And then yeah. it like sinks back, it dives back down into the right note. Like I have some embarrassing videos of me online playing where like I'm just sharp the whole time that I'm playing because I tuned the guitar to be in tune whenever I'm just sitting there calmly playing. And then I get up on stage and I'm just ripping it. And because I'm playing so hard and I'm holding the notes so hard, I'm actually bending it sharp out of tune. Um, you play with your fingers, right? Uh, about about 80% of the time I play with my fingers and then 20% of the time I'll use a pick just for tone. Talk about that a little bit. When do you decide, when do you opt for a pick instead of finger style? Good question. Um, so fingers tend to be more warm more round sounding but you can also get you can get better feel and articulation from it especially for funky or rhythmic kind of passages hmm. so that in comparison to pick is way way more high-end attack way more precise instantaneous punch whenever you hit so uh i like using i like using fingers for Maybe straightforward rock where you're playing eighth notes a lot and you're just chugging. Um, or you're playing something groovy and funky. That's cool to use fingers for that because you can really... Um, there, there's, no, there's nothing in between your, the strings being played and your hands as, as you would have with the guitar having a pick. There's that, that medium of the pick in between the feel from your hands and the guitar. Um, now I do like on bass, like for really aggressive metal, like sometimes a pick is like necessary because the guitars are so high gain and aggressive. Uh, it just helps the bass cut through a little bit better. And also for for punk rock, it's cool to have that that pick attack too. I like that. Yeah, I definitely find with a bass played with a pick and a busy rock track, it, it tends to be easier to make it cut through with when you have that pick attack. Uh, but I guess the it's pretty much similar for guitar. I mean, there's a lot of, not as many cases. I think more guitarists tend to use picks, but there's definitely, you kind of know the fingers, finger style when you hear it. Let's move on to pickups. So for for guitar, we can break pickups into a couple of different categories here. The first one we'll talk about is active versus passive pickups. So a passive pickup basically doesn't require a power supply. It doesn't have any preamp circuitry. It just literally is the string vibrating and it induces an electric current in the pickup. And then that goes through, you know, out of the guitar and into whatever chain you have and then into the amp. 
versus an active pickup actually requires a power supply. So like if you ever if you have a guitar that requires like a nine volt battery or a bass that requires a nine volt battery, those are active pickups, which means there's actually a preamp kind of built into the guitar. There's a circuit that actually boosts the signal a little bit. And there's some advantages and disadvantages to both of them. I would say though with passive pickups, uh, you have to be a little more careful about how long your cable run is. It's a lot easier to suck tone out of passive pickups and, and they don't handle long cable runs as well. So you can start losing your, your high end uh, pretty quickly. Whereas with, with active pickups, because you're kind of boosting that signal already, uh, hmm. you can get longer cable runs in. The um, Another thing there is with active pickups, because you have an, a, basically a little preamp circuit, you can do things like actually have boost EQs where you ha- you can have an EQ built into the, like I have a bass, like an Ibanez bass with active pickups. I can actually add treble to it, which you can't do with passive pickups because all you can do is cut on passive pickups. Um, and active pickups Interesting. kind of gain a lot of, I think gain a lot of fame with high gain metal stuff because again, you get a higher, hotter output out of the guitar so you can drive an amp louder. Yeah. But interestingly enough, I think, you know the company Bare Knuckle? Yeah. Pickups? Yeah, it's like all the guys from Periphery use Bare Knuckle and a lot of, a lot of actually, I don't know if Meshuggah uses them or not, but a lot of like metal bands use Bare Knuckle pickups and they, those guys only make passive pickups and they say passive pickups sound better. So um, take that for what it's worth. Interesting. I think a lot more basses are made with active pickups than guitars. Really? In general. Okay. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think active pickups also have a higher dynamic range. Is that true? What do you mean? Like the, I guess the signal to noise ratio would be higher and Mm. also just the dynamic output. You have a, a higher potential for your loudest notes and quietest notes with active pickups. Yeah, than passive. that makes sense to me. That does make sense to me. And there again with um, with uh, passive pickups, I think that's also where heavier strings make a big difference uh, as well because you have that kind of more metal vibrating around. It can move more, um, yeah. more current really through the pickup, so that helps as well. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, to hear that. The other thing I think with active pickups is they isolate the pickup circuit from the preamp circuit, so I don't know if they're quieter. Maybe that's what you mean, where they have a, maybe a better signal-to-noise ratio. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that, but I could see that being true. I don't know, and I'm, I'm just thinking out loud too, but there's a lot more situations where a bass player might just be plugged clean straight into an amp and he's going to have his volume maxed out. And the difference between him playing loud and quiet is how hard he strikes the bass with his fingers and not the volume level. Whereas with guitar, I mean, maybe you run into that if you're a jazz guitarist. But otherwise, guitar is basically as loud as it's going to be all the time uh, based off of your boost or volume. Do you know what I'm saying? That's true. I I I would guess that's more of like a headroom amp issue. So like, yeah, when we distort guitars, we're really, we really have no headroom. Like we're broken up, even playing quietly. Um, That's actually, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that 
more about that when we talk about amps on what how headroom affects you. But I'm guessing that's probably the thing there is your guitars were driving the amps so hard. There's really like no headroom left, even if you're playing quieter, it's still going to be distorted in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. Um, single coil versus humbucker is probably something you, you're aware of as well. Like the single coil is a single row of, of, uh, of, um, magnets, um, like a Fender Stratocaster has that. And single coils tend to be also a little bit brighter and kind of twangier sounding. They're also noisier. And that's actually where the word humbucker comes from is it's Hmm. pickup designed to buck hum or like get rid of hum. The way they do that is actually by having basically like two single coil pickups, but one of them is flipped 180 degrees. So the idea is they're both picking up noise and kind of canceling each other out. The noise is canceling itself out. So that's one of the advantages of a humbucker pickup. The other advantage is you just get like a chunkier, thicker tone, uh, which, you know, again, you may want or you may not want, right? I ran into something really interesting today when I was trying out some uh, new guitar amp simulators. And, uh, uh, well, I was trying out basically the whole suite of neural DSP plugins. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to hear <laughs> yeah. it. It, it's going to be, I mean, I eventually want to do an episode where I just kind of go through some of those different tones. It's going to be fun. We should see, um, we should see if they'll sponsor that episode. <laughs> that would be really cool, actually. I, I'll go ahead and reach out to them. Yeah, you um, But I have three different guitars, and I also was using their, um, they have two bass amp sims as well that I was playing around with. But I was most interested in the, they have six or so different uh, guitar amp sims or collections of guitar amps that they have together. And I have three different guitars that I play on here in my studio. I have a Fender Stratocaster that has, I think a humbucker at the bridge and two single mm. coils at the neck and in between. Um, I, I also have a RG series Ibanez. So that's just like a metal bass with two humbuckers at the bridge and the neck. And then I have a John Petrucci seven string, and I think that's two humbuckers as what, well. Music man, which is, is fun. Yeah, no way. Yeah, dude, yeah, that's pretty awesome. dope. Um, so I was trying out basically all those amp sims through the different guitars, and uh, crazily enough, I was trying out the Pliny archetype. Um, and if are you familiar with Pliny's music at all? Yeah, instrumental definitely. rock, definitely, yeah. His stuff is super cool, and he also has a really wide variety of um, guitar tones. Anything from like super crunchy, genty metal to transparent, clean, ambient cleans, like, and everything in between, like all over his records. And shockingly enough to me, that plugin and those amps made for, I guess, that are emulating his setup, they sounded the best on my friend Fender Strat, and my Strat has never sounded so good hmm. as on all the tone settings, not just the cleans, but also the heavies. And that was such an eye-opening thing to me because I felt like, well, metal guitar amps are always going to sound better with humbuckers. And I was proven wrong today that that's not always the case, that there are certain metal tones that sound good with single coils. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there because that was news to me. And 
now it makes sense whenever you see people like Jim Root playing their customized uh, Fender Telecaster whenever they're playing in Slipknot, you know, or maybe it's Mick Thompson, I forget, but one of them plays like a a modded um, Telecaster and it's like the most metal sound ever, but you're like, it's a Telecaster. That doesn't make any sense. I I'm actually, I have the same exact story with um, a band. I was at a, like a hardcore show in Long Island. A friend of mine was a, a drummer in this band and there was a band called Bella Kiss and they had two guitarists and they had really great tone, you know, really like, metal stuff one guitarist had like a beautiful prs with just really monster strings it was exactly what you would expect and the other guy was playing a telecaster and he had equal like different (laughs) but equally fantastic tone i actually wanted to come up to him afterwards and talk about it but i didn't get a chance but i think and this is going to be um when we get into amps right now maybe i think this is one of the areas where our pyramid rule kind of breaks down Hmm. i think you can make up for um you you can make up for a guitar using pedals and an amp settings in a way that you can't make up for having the wrong amp and having the right guitar and the right pedal settings like okay. you can't i don't think i could make a fender twin sound like a dual rectifier you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah. no matter what yeah. you gave me but if i had a dual rectifier I could probably make a Telecaster sound pretty metal. <laughs> you know? That's true. Yeah, that's very true. Okay, so we're, yeah, yeah. I don't know that that's true because I haven't played around with it, but that's just my gut feel. I feel like you can't, um, yeah, the amp is is really, so much of the sound comes from the amp. Um, so, let, yeah, let's get into amps a little bit. I mean, there's, obviously, there's tube amps, there's solid-state amps, there's some hybrid amps, and then there's amp modeling, which you were talking about, which is super exciting because it's getting really good now. Um, mm-hmm. Traditionally, I mean, tube amps were like the first amps, and you had to... Um, people found that when they turn them up really loud, they get this this pleasing distortion and this warm kind of sound coming out of them. And it's because tubes kind of emphasize these even-order harmonics which are really kind of pleasant to the ear eventually solid state amps were invented which just used like transistors instead of tubes and people thought they sounded like really cold and kind of i don't know not good i guess not as pleasant the distortion wasn't as pleasant and they've gotten better since then but you'll know probably that there's still a lot of love for tube amps and in my own personal experience what i've noticed with tube amps is it's hard to make them sound bad. Like I've had really great success with modeling in my studio, but there's a thousand ways to make an amp modeler sound bad and only a couple of ways to get them to sound good. And I've gotten, uh, started buying up these little micro, like these little lunchbox uh, tube amp heads. Uh They just sound good. They just sound, they're just, they just sound good kind of no matter what you do. And mm-hmm. so that's one thing I noticed is they're easier to get good sounds of. The other thing I noticed is that you get this, um, one of the things I love about Stevie Ray Vaughan's tone is that his pick attack really determined the level of distortion in his tone. You know, when he was playing lightly, he got a very kind of crystal clear tone that then would, he would be able to kind of get some crunch out of with a harder pick attack. The first time I really experienced that was with a tube amp. If, if you roll off your volume knob on your guitar, you can get a pretty clean sound and then you roll that volume back up and you can get a really crunchy sound and i thought that was kind of cool 
I haven't really had that kind of same experience with uh, uh, solid state amps I've owned. I completely agree with that because uh, my main bass rig is it's a tubed bass head as well, okay. and it very similar. Like it doesn't it doesn't break up quite as much, but it gets grittier the more you dig into it. And there's just something really cool and analog and warm and natural about that mm. versus solid state and like you said, plugins are getting better, but solid state just I feel like people describe them as cold because when it comes to distortion, they're either on or off. You don't get that natural, like eclipsing this this gray area of not really distorted, more distorted. Instead, it's just either there's a lot of distortion or no distortion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The One of the problems, or it used to be more of a problem with tube amps was that to get that good distorted sound you have to play really freaking loud you have to really drive them <laughs> and a lot of people like i lived in apartments for most of my adult life i couldn't crank a tube amp which is why i started yeah. playing around with amp modeling to begin with but like i said if you're if you're on the market if you're in the market for a new amp there's there's all these lunchbox amps out there now which are just small like 15 watt and some they can even go down to like smaller power uh, powers than that with some switches but these really small tube amps which sound good and you don't have to play quite as loud to you don't you don't have to get your big freaking 100 watt amp and, and blow yeah your, uh, blow your neighbor's ears out that's that's such a big deal um for a lot of reasons we'll specifically talk about recording but i even know that for some of those old school like PV like 5150 half stacks because um, I had this situation happen to me where my brother-in-law's band came in to record here and we were really concerned about the volume because we were recording pretty late and I have neighbors kind of close did he have a 5150 half stack? yeah wow that's sweet <laughs> it, yeah it is sweet it was awesome but you actually get a different EQ response if it's quieter mm. the the low end rolls off more, so to get a more even, uh, more more full range guitar sound, you have to play it loud. Because if you turn it down, you lose your high end and your low end. It doesn't yeah. sound as good. So keep that in mind when you're buying an amp, and the goal is not bigger is better. Uh, the goal should be, well, what suits my needs? Because if you're just going to be playing in an apartment, get a little 15 watts, because... The more watts that your head has, the louder you have to drive it to get that same effect. That's right. That's right. And it's even becoming, I think, less important live. Like, again, at this hardcore show, I, I saw it where it was done really well in a small venue where the amps weren't particularly big, but they were mic'd. The sound guy mic'd them and they were going through the PA. And that's where, like, the, you know, the volume was coming yeah. from. Uh, so you don't need as much amp as you may think you do, and I agree with you. I think smaller is actually better because you'll be able to drive it harder at a more reasonable volume. So the last thing is speakers and speaker cabinets, which actually make a huge freaking difference. I couldn't believe how big of a difference they made until I started playing around with this. Even with like amp modeling, I think the problem... So I had so many bad experiences with amp modeling in the early 2000s. Like I had like the original, the like the line six bean, kidney bean shaped pod. 
you remember those things? Yeah. Oh, I remember. Everybody had them. Yeah. Everybody had them because they, yeah, they seemed like a cool little thing and you could select four by 12 cabinet and it just didn't sound right. It just didn't sound like an amp. And I think the big, where, where the, the technology, the modeling technology has really come along in the last decade is specifically with impulse responses that, which what they basically do is simulate a cabinet. The preamp modeling was probably pretty good. But the impulse response, the cabinet modeling, that that cabinet response was what's really come a long way and I think made a lot of these neural DSP plugins and other plugins so believable. Is that similar to your experience? Yeah, I agree. I didn't mess with cab sims as much back like in the old Line 6 days. But I agree. I think that's what... So I, I know a few people have asked us questions, and if you're listening to the podcast now, I hope this maybe answers at least some of the guitar tone question, but um, I keep seeing this question come up or, or people ask me, how do you get this fat tone in your records? And I think a lot of it is that, that cab response. Um, because if you're just getting maybe the pure preamp head tone, like they're correct, but what you're missing out on is uh, that sense of air molecules moving through the air in a way that only a cabinet can do. And I think that's tricky to emulate in a completely digital system. And that's what these companies have started to begun being able to do because um, the way that we respond to music, and especially loud music, if you think about a concert venue, uh, they crank they crank that music up loud because it has a physical effect on a human whenever they're listening to it. You not only are hearing it, you're feeling the music as well. And that's such a big deal for bass and guitar players. We like to feel it. Yeah, there's there's something about that amp kind of fighting, wrestling the speaker that is difficult or has been difficult to simulate in the past. And it's definitely getting better now. So, okay, so if you're looking to build a tone for, for a new record or for your live show, whether you're starting from scratch or looking to upgrade it, um, we'll get into some techniques here. So one thing I, that's, I've liked a lot is using something I call the playlist method, which is where whatever streaming service you use, like I use the Google one, I have a playlist on there that's called Guitar Tones. And through the mm. course of my normal day, I'll be listening to music, maybe like an artist radio station or something. If I hear a song where I love the guitar tone, I'll add it to that playlist. And I'll just do that for a couple of weeks or maybe a month or whatever. And then one day I'll sit down, I'll go through that playlist. And there's these great sites, like one is equipboard.com, E-Q-U-I-P-B-O-A-R-D.com. Or there's like a Guitar Nerds channel on YouTube. You can use these sites to look up the artists and the albums that are on your list and see the gear they were using. And Hmm. One really interesting thing happened to me. I was I was kind of preparing to do an EP and I was looking for a tone. Um, I found an amp that was common amongst multiple bands that were on my list. It was an amp by this British company called Hayden. There's this Hayden Mofo amp that they make. And I was like, holy crap, this amp keeps coming up on my list. And that was a good indication for me that like, oh, maybe I should try this amp. So <laughs> I bought one and it sounded pretty good. So it's a good way to kind of just see what gear keeps um, keeps cropping up on your list. That's a great method, and I'm glad you went first, and I'm also glad you asked me because <laughs> then you get to see how unscientific I have been about this, which is funny because I am a scientist <laughs> <laughs> in, in my uh, in my other life. But um, 
yeah, I kind of got lucky whenever it came to my bass tone um, because I always liked the feel and the shape of Ernie Ball Music Man basses. So I kind of just always gravitated towards that, the style. And um, they just felt comfortable in my hands whenever I was playing. And I kind of got used to the tone that they have and I like the tone that they have. So I just kind of got lucky with tone whenever it came to that. And I wasn't really sure um, what kind of amp I wanted to buy uh, whenever I wanted, when I first started looking for more professional level amplifiers. And my buddy said, you should really check out Mesa Boogie. And I'm like, they make bass amps? Like, I, I had no idea because you see them, you see dual wrecks like anywhere at metal shows. Right. Uh, but I didn't know that they made bass amps. And he's like, oh yeah, like they actually made bass amps before they made guitar amps. So I did some research and then, and I went down to a local music venue and I tried three different amps. I tried an Ampeg SVT. Classic, yeah. I tried, yep. Um, I tried a, an orange terror like a 500 watt amp mm. and oranges are really cool actually they but they've got more of that like british like breakup fuzzy vintage sound to them mm. which isn't quite the style that i play uh but then i plugged into the mesa and the thing i loved about that was and one point i want to make too is that uh it was the com. It wasn't just the amp, but it was the combination of my bass along with that amp that made all the difference. Because music man basses, they tend to be really bright mm. in general. So I didn't like a music man, and there are tons of artists. There's tons of people that play Ernie Ball music men along with an SVT, and there's nothing wrong with that. But for my ears, I thought that the SVT was just in general too bright in in uh, combination with my music man. So it just seemed to be too bright to me and too maybe brittle. Um, but the Mesa just had this really clean, transparent, and yet uh, like dirty grit that you could add to it naturally with the gain. Mm. And that's just what I loved about it so much. Um, but yeah, those are really the only instruments and amps that I've ever owned and I just kind of got lucky and found stuff that I liked really quickly and, and I didn't have to wind up going through like a whole bunch of different amps or different bases till I found what I liked. Sure, but you did you did try out a couple. You went to that venue and tried them I out. I did, which yeah, that's true. A lot of times you can you can do that. You go to like a guitar center or a music store and just bring your guitar and just try out a couple of different amps and uh, see what works for you. Um, so yeah, once... Rather than doing my uh, plug everything in and start twisting knobs method, which does not work, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, what I found works really well is once you have your guitar and it's properly set up and you've got the new strings on it, or, you know, that's, that's always a good idea. We talked about that um, on the preparing to record episodes. What I like to do is actually plug the guitar directly into my interface just re and just record the DI and then listen back to that. Hmm. And a lot of times you can hear... Just this, that's the raw sound coming off the pickups. And it is true that when you're building tone, that pyramid thing does apply where the things you change earlier are going to make the bigger difference. So for example, like I have a, actually, I think we're going to try to do a bonus episode and I'll, I'll play these examples, but I have this Schecter guitar, which is like, it's a diamond series Schecter, which is like their production run. It's not a super expensive guitar, 
but I just love it. It just feels good. It plays well and it stays in tune. But when I recorded the DI and I only did this years after having the guitar, I was like, huh, this is really boxy sounding. And what I found was that it sounds a lot better if I just cut a little, that DI tone sounds a lot better if I cut a little 500 hertz out of it. Hmm. And so now that I know that, I can make those adjustments, you know, in using an EQ or something in my in my pedal board chain and get that tone to closer to where I want it. So understanding what is the sound coming directly off your pickups is important. Once you do that, the next thing I think is plug that guitar. Don't forget your pedals for a second. Just plug it directly into the amp and just mm-hmm. see what kind of a drive sound you can get out of that amp and try to dial that in. And that's going to, again, you're, you're trying to kind of start with the tone, the clean guitar tone, and build up from there. What is your amp doing? And then once you have an idea, only once you have those two things in place, would you start playing with things like drive pedals, which we'll get into next. But I want to let you uh, you comment with that. Yeah, I basically do the exact same thing that you do. Um, I'm not necessarily as per- particular or scientific about it, but I just know on my Music Man basses, I like to cut. There's a active three-band EQ on it, so a treble, a mid, and a bass. And I don't know at what frequencies those operate. I'm sure they're pretty wide. But on the mid, I always cut it to 50%. Or something like that. Um, so it's just a natural cut that I put in there that I don't have to do later down the chain. Like right. I don't have to cut that out of the amp. Uh, so I start with that. Um, and then, uh, I mean, for a lot of years, I had very few pedals or plugged straight into the amp. So then I just mess with the... Normally what I wind up doing when I'm trying out uh, even a new amp or a, or a an amp sim, I'll put all the knobs at... Um, 12 o'clock and the first thing I'll play with is my gain like how much gain or crunch do I want out of this tone and I'll get that to the place where I kind of want it and then I'll play with uh, uh, if it has EQ settings the bass the mid and the treble you know what sounds the best to me what sounds the most pleasing uh, and then maybe after that I'll make some fine tune adjustments on the gain because maybe it's changed some things from messing around with that but yeah, essentially, I just kind of go in that order because think about if if you weren't to do that kind of a thing. And I actually had a guitar player in my studio where he um, had his EQ settings on his guitar, like he had specific places where he had all his knobs and taped down, and then he would run that directly into an, a seven or nine band EQ that had basically uh, it was a hump shape on it. And then I took a look at his amp, and his amp had a U-shape on it. So <laughs> everything that he did with the amp was to counteract all the EQ settings that he put on earlier. So I imagine what happened is that he maybe did some adjustments uh, on his amp later, and instead of thinking, uh, was this the best settings possible, he just added in another pedal to counteract everything else. And I think there maybe can be some uses for doing that kind of a thing where you take away something and then add it later. Like there can be some specific uh, circumstances where that can be necessary. But in general, like I like to put less things in the chain and less EQ moves. Totally, totally agree with you. And yeah, there is a big difference because like in your first example, that's what what you're sending into the amp. So anything, any unwanted frequencies you send into the amp, especially if you're using a distortion tone, 
what that distortion is doing is it's adding a ton of harmonic content. So if you had too much 500 hertz in your tone and you sent that into the amp, now you have not only too much 500 hertz, but you have all the too much harmonics of that 500 hertz that the amp is adding. Mm. Um, so you want to try to clean up those messy spots before going into the amp. Uh, you, there's certainly something to be said for EQing after the amp. Like if you had your tone and you're happy and then the amp is just too fizzy, you can start doing stuff like that. Yeah, the other thing with that with that DI is it's a good opportunity. Like you said, you have those three knobs, the bass, mids, and treble control, and you're not sure exactly what frequencies they're centered around. But if you're recording just the DI, that's a good time to play around with that and just see like, all right, what do all these knobs do? <laughs> and for yeah. um, tone controls for passive uh, electric guitar pickups are mostly like high roll-offs. They mostly like roll off top end. Mm. So in fact, I was reading Misha Mansour from, um, from a periphery. He has a guitar where he can actually bypass the tone knob because he says even with the tone knob all the way up on 10, he still feels there's a little bit of high end sucked out of it. So um, interesting. Yeah. So play around with those knobs and the pickup selector switches and kind of try to see what everything does. Cause once you got everything running through your full rig, it's harder to tell what those, what those things are doing. You know, what's funny about that example that you just said, maybe, maybe Misha actually really likes active pickups and he's just unwilling to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't because he's bypassing the passive EQ switches on it. Anyways, I, that was just a funny thought in my mind. Because yeah, he he does use bare knuckle, which are which are passive. But yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So the uh, next thing we'll talk about is uh, the a boost when you would use a boost or a drive pedal. And again, you want to do this kind of conscientiously. There's basically two reasons, two main reasons why you would use a boost pedal in between your guitar and your amp, or like an overdrive pedal or something like that. One reason is tone shaping. So those pedals impart a certain tone or a certain characteristic, and you may like that. Like the Tube Screamers, like a really classic, even actually, that's the Stevie Ray Vaughan sound, and that's the Gent sound, is, is like from a Tube Screamer. So it does yeah. something very specific to the tone. The other reason is that you just want to boost the signal. So when we talk about a tube amp, we need to push the signal harder into the tube amp in order to get more distortion or more breakup. So it's another way to get kind of um, a more of a boost, and it's also something you can turn on and off. So again, here you want to be pretty methodical. Once you're happy with your, uh, I'll say one more thing here is there's there's a lot of places to distort along the signal path, and you really want to see what each of them do. In most, like you can distort with a pedal, you can distort in the preamp or you can distort in the power amp, and they're all gonna sound a little bit different. You really wanna try to pick one main distortion stage that you think sounds good and kind of use that as your main drive tone. Hmm. So if you're getting your main drive tone from the amp, what you wanna do with that boost pedal, usually boost pedals have a couple of controls on them. They'll usually have like a gain, which again is how you add grit or, or distortion from that pedal. They'll also have, um, usually a clean like a clean level knob. So that clean level knob, the, f the first thing you want to kind of do is, is run everything, like you said, either at 12 o'clock or even turn the gain all the way down and just listen to the characteristic of that pedal. What's it doing to your tone? Is it doing what you want it to do? And then you have to decide. A lot of times the way to use these boost pedals, you can actually turn the gain all the way down if you don't want any distortion from the pedal. 
And then you can use the level knob, which is like a clean boost, and you can use that to drive your signal harder or softer into the amp. I'll normally play with one knob at a time yeah. just to kind of see what it does. <laughs> That's a good idea. Because if you're if you start playing with more than one at a time, you don't really know what you're how you're affecting your signal or whatnot. I know I know what you're talking about. This gets a lot more complicated when you're talking about guitar stuff versus bass stuff seems to be a lot more straightforward, but I, I know what you're talking about where um do you want to get your drive from a pedal or from the amp itself? And uh I remember finding myself in a couple situations where I was playing guitar live or in bands and it was hard for me to figure out do I want to do I want to have a completely dry amp so that I have the ability to do cleans and then have like a boost pedal before to over to work as an overdrive mm. or do I want to just get the tone I want out of the amp and then maybe like uh an even more crunchy overdrive and that always was a uh that was a hard dilemma to to kind of figure out, and and I could see now why um, a lot of amps they have the two separate channels, right. like a clean and a dirty channel, for that specific reason. I think that's huge what you said there. Yeah, it depends on like what style of music you're playing, because you could do a hybrid method. You could say, well, I want to I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want my drive tone to come from the amp, but I also want to be able to play clean, and that's where that the uh, level knob on your on your drive pedal really comes into play because you can just when you turn the pedal on the level let's say is all the way up on 10 that's going to just drive the signal harder into your amp and you could still distort the amp another way to do it is to not have the level up on 10 and actually use the gain knob of the distortion pedal and then when you click click that distortion on you're getting distortion from the pedal itself so yeah it's play around with it you know and see what see what the see what it sounds like in my experience, I've usually been happier with the drive tone of my amp than of any pedal. And that could be just the pedals I have, but I don't know. You agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. Unless unless the pedal is specifically made to work in conjunction with an amp or, or something like that. Like, And what I'm thinking about, I'm thinking mostly about bass and... and I know we've been a little bit long-winded about this tone. I mean, there's just so much to go into with all of this. But one thing I want to talk about in particular uh, when it comes to distortion, and this is very applicable to bass, but also with guitar, is that um, more isn't always better. And there's like a happy medium to... It also depends on the genre, but I feel like sometimes or at least when I first got into trying to develop guitar tones that I thought were heavy, especially for like heavy metal, I just thought the more distortion and fuzz I can add, <laughs> the grittier and heavier it's going to be. Um, right. But that doesn't always work. And in particular on bass, that doesn't work because one thing that adding a lot of distortion does is it saps, it saps the clarity of the low end. And I think the same thing can happen on guitar as well. So do we want to talk about that at all? Or what do you think yeah, about that? Absolutely. I think I think it's a great discussion. Go for it. Yeah. So maybe you can touch on the guitar, but I, I want to talk talk about bass a little bit. Um, because that's 
a very specific um, application of distortion to bass. Why a lot of why a lot of guitar distortions don't work on bass is that for bass to sound good, you have to have a very clean, transparent, transparent low end to carry the tone. Um, and a lot of guitar distortions, they just wind up kind of making the low end just kind of disappear or roll off or not sound punchy enough. If you're, if you're hitting really staccato notes or loud punchy things, they just don't have the same impact that they had. Uh, so what a lot of specifically designed bass distortion pedals do are they have a, um, they have a couple different circuits that affect the mids and the highs differently than they affect the low end. So they'll keep the low end intact and transparent, but only add distortion to the mid and the treble. Um, but one thing you can do also on top of that is um, if you have a blend knob, and I do this all the time with distortions, I'll blend in so that I have at least 50% to, um, maybe not at least 50%, but somewhere between 30 to 70% transparent signal coming through from the bass. Uh, that way I don't lose out on all the punchiness of the actual character from the bass instrument itself. And then I'm just adding distortion on top of it so i'm not going overboard yeah that's a great technique uh, i haven't seen a lot of guitar pedals with that blend knob although i'm sure they do exist but um and another thing what you mentioned there is understanding the way that different that distortion sounds on the different frequency bands so like distorting your bass notes or your lower frequency notes would be like a fuzz tone and there, you know, there's certainly applications where you would use that. And like, I think Smashing Pumpkins on like Siamese Dream, right? That's that classic like Big Muff fuzz tone. Mm. It's, um, yeah, fuzz is like a really great actually description of what fuzz pedals do. They sound kind of fuzzy um, mm -hmm. versus distorting like your mid-range tone in that kind of 700 to 1000 hertz range is like, that's like the cold gent tightness versus distorting the treble-y stuff is more like a crunch sound, more like a Marshall, like ACDC Marshall type tone. Mm -hmm. So knowing where to focus uh, that, and a lot of times the pedal you select will will definitely affect that. I think you're absolutely right though. I think a lot of guitar distortion and drive pedals have a low end roll off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, just to keep it from affecting the low frequencies as much. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. And that's something that you can, again, you can test that by just turning the gain all the way down. Plug your guitar into the drive and then into your DI and turn it on and off. And you'll you'll probably hear that if it's got a roll and low off, you'll hear that. It's not necessarily a bad thing for guitars, but yeah, I could see that not working for bass because it'll probably suck too much of uh, what you want out of a bass yeah. guitar out of the tone. Yeah, that's why I wound up like... I swear by those dark glass pedals because they're they're made by bass players for bass players because it took me a really long... I, I love bass distortion. I love distortion on any kind of guitar, but it took me a really long time to find uh, a pedal that would do it and, and not sap like the, the pure tone from the amp because I, I really love... And the thing was is that I love the tone I was getting from my amps, but I just felt like... The distortion I was putting in between was kind of ruining that 
And was that, is your reasoning for having that distortion in between, is it so you can turn it on and off as opposed to just driving your amp the whole time? Like you want to have the kind of two channels almost? Um, well, no, not really, because I like to have it on all the time. I just think, I kind of use it as a preamp because okay. I think it well, it just makes it sound so the good. The dark glass pedal is basically a preamp, isn't it? It actually... Um, kind of, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, I don't think there's any tubes in it, but it's like kind of supposed to be emulating like a tube preamp circuitry kind of thing. Yeah, those things sound amazing. I've every bass player I've ever talked to that's tried one of those is sold on it. Oh yeah, they're they're amazing. And I mean that's the cool thing about, you know, living in 2020 is that more companies are getting smart with this and and if it's not dark glass, it's neural DSP or other people that are making like stuff that's very comparable. So it's not hard it's not hard like it once was to find like uh tones that you like. The last thing I'll mention here is this is something I've been playing around with instead of using a drive pedal. I have this drive pedal that I actually hate. I hate what it does to my guitar sound, but I use it and I kind of have to use some EQs to not to neutralize its like its curve, its EQ curve, but I just use it because it boosts my amp nicely. So I'm basically using it as a clean level boost. Interesting. And what I got recently was a parametric EQ pedal. It's made by this company, Empress. It's called a para-EQ. And it gives you three bands, three equalizer bands with varying cues. You could do like a wide, basically a wide frequency band, a, a you know, middle one and a narrow one. So you can cut or boost certain frequencies. And then it has like a bunch of clean gain as well. Hmm. And I was like, okay, well, I like my guitar tone and my amp tone as they are. All I want is some boost, and I want to make that little 500 hertz cut. And it works really freaking well. I really love it. I got to play around with it some more, and I might post some samples on a bonus episode. But this is something I've not heard of like guitar players doing a lot, is it using like a little parametric EQ with a boost instead of a drive pedal. And I think it could be a really cool thing. Because it's flexible, right? You can you can change the curve. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of guitarists are just intimidated by parametric EQ. They just want to have like a two knob distortion pedal, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's well, honestly, it's not as sexy to say buy a parametric EQ as it is to buy like the Demon Slayer praying mantis distortion. Yeah, I want the one with the blood <laughs> dripping off of it. <laughs> That's, yeah, that one sounds good. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> cool, man. You got anything else? I think that's it for now. I mean, I would say let's make it a conversation because I love the idea of bringing in some examples and talking about it and and just seeing what other people think about it, you know, and people in our Facebook community and and whatnot. If you guys have any questions or examples, like send us stuff. We'd love to like listen to it and and give our feedback and talk about it. And I mean, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'll answer this for bass. I'm curious about the guitar. Um, so the question was, have you ever used flat wound strings before? And What is a flat wound string? A flat wound string is, so typically, um, r- typical strings are round wound, at least on electric guitars. And what that means is you have a... Uh, center, you have a center 
string that runs the whole length of your string. And then wrapped around that is another string that is a typical circular shape and that's wrapped around. So if you were to zoom in and look uh, at a cross section of the string, you'd see little bumps the whole way around. And that's because of the shape of the string that's being wrapped around it. And that's why it's called round wound. So a flat wound string is the same thing, but all of those strings that are wrapped around, and I don't know how they actually do this, if it's just a, um, if it's just half of a string, so it's literally a, a, a half moon shape or a semicircle, and where all of the round parts are facing inward towards the string, so the outside of it is completely f flat. You don't have any ridges on it. It's smooth. You can slide your fingers up and down, and you don't feel little bumps on it. Mm. Do you think that's a good way of explaining it? How would you explain it? Vadim? Oh, that's perfect, man. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I've the main reason you would have it on bass and I guess even guitar is they're made primarily, I think, for fretless instruments. Hmm. So any fretless bass or upright bass is going to be made with flat wounds because if you have round wounds, which actually I have a right over here in the corner, I have a fretless jazz bass, Fender jazz bass. And when I bought it, there were round wounds put on it and it damaged the fretboard because all of those uh, little grooves dug into the fretboard. Hmm. So whoever owned it last was an idiot. But um, that's the main reason why you would have flat wound, flat wounds made in general. But um, I did try putting flat wounds on my electric guitar or my electric bass and I didn't like it as much because you don't get as bright of a sound um, because when you have all the little ridges, it's kind of like metal on metal and mm. uh, metal metal with the string ver on the middle of the frets. And it's just more aggressive with those ridges versus the flat, uh, flat wounds. And also I noticed for whatever reason, even though I had the same string gauge size, the tension was so much greater on the flat wounds versus the round wounds. Hmm. So it seemed like round wounds were more slinky and more bendable for the gauge size versus round wounds. Versus flat wounds, yeah. Yeah, wow. versus flat wounds, that's super Sorry. interesting. I've never played around with that, but it, it makes sense what you're saying. You have like a less contact between the fret and the string gives you kind of a more, a brighter sound. It doesn't dampen. The sound as much that's really interesting i've heard of a bunch of metal bands playing with flat or flat wounds really because they it's a more pure low-end tone i don't know huh i do recall like reading about or or hearing about some bands doing that kind of a thing but i don't think it's very I don't think it's very typical and I'm just not as big of a fan of it because you lose you lose so much high end. Round wounds are so much brighter and, and I like the brightness of, of that. So interesting. Well that was fun. I guess we should uh, wrap it up. Yeah. So definitely interested in to hear what you guys have to say. Flat wounds, humbuckers, toe knob <laughs> bypasses, whatever you're into. I definitely want to hear about it. I know Ben wants to hear about it as well. Until next time, this is the DIY Recording Guys reminding you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Right. Have a good one, everyone. Yeah.
you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.